All right, well, good morning, everyone. What a great morning so far, right? My gosh, awesome. Well, we are officially in the fall, so who is excited for that? Anyone excited? Oh, yes, it's here. Love it. So fall started on Thursday, September 22nd at 9.03 p.m., but who's counting, right? I am. So I love the fall, September through December, as has been said a few times today, is also my favorite four months of the year. I love apple picking, cider donuts, football, hoodies, cold weather, bugs dying, it getting darker earlier. I also love all the holidays that are between September and December. And so I want to share a story real quick to launch us into John about some of these things. So I remember this one holiday where my family was all sitting around the table and everything was just right. Many of the people around the table knew Jesus personally, so that was just a dress rehearsal of sorts for the better banquet that we believers in Jesus are invited to in the near future. But as I looked around the table, that joy started to dim a little bit because there were so many different responses, keep that word in mind today, responses to Jesus represented. There were some around the table who had been walking with Jesus for 40 plus years. There was a depth of wisdom and love in them. There were some who were learning how to live loved and to share their lives around Jesus. There were some who were were not walking with the Lord. Some used to, others had not accepted Jesus yet, and many of them were going through some pretty challenging trials. There were some who belonged to other faith traditions. And to end on a high note, there was someone who had just come to Christ and was growing like crazy. So one table representing a wide variety of opinions, thoughts, and responses to Jesus. So question, who's coming to your table these days, and what is their response to Jesus? Or more personally, what is your response to Jesus? Well, I wanted to start this way because our passage in John 7 today has a similar theme to it. Now, isn't that something? (laughs) A quinky-dink, as they say. In John 7, we're going to see a variety of opinions and thoughts and responses to Jesus. And I think it's important to see how people respond to Jesus because these varied responses to him are the responses. And notice I'm highlighting a word here that we're going to get as we live and share Jesus with others. So to help us with this, I want to zero in on how Jesus made very bold bold claims about himself, but what is our response to him? So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for help in this. Let's watch our video overview of John 7, 1 through 31, and then look at all the varied responses to Jesus in John 7. You guys ready for this? All right, let's pray and then look at our video. So Father, thank you yet again that we can open your word I just pray that you would give us clarity of vision and sight so we can see you as you really are. 
and help us respond to you the way that you desire to be responded to, which is by faith, to trust who you are, to trust what you've done for us, to receive that, and to let that change us from the inside out. Help us see all the varied responses to you today and respond to you in faith. So please teach us now in your name. Amen. Take a look at our video. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. And you are all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead, judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, 
Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? All right. So lots and lots of responses to Jesus there. So let me set a context a little bit before we kind of dive into this. So we've been kind of noticing this theme with John where between the chapters... There's been a lot of things happening in the other Gospels, and it's kind of the same thing here with, between John 6 and John 7. So between John 6 and 7, there's a gap of six months. And man, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So I just want to share super quick summary format what's happening between John 6 and John 7 that leads us into what we're looking at today. So in that gap of six months, here's what happens. Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon where he heals the daughter of a Gentile. Remember, she followed after him, asking for crumbs from the table. Jesus said it wasn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. The Greek word for dogs there is actually the word for puppies and is a warm, affectionate word. The woman presses in, and much unlike the people who didn't want him as the bread from heaven, this woman is begging for crumbs from him. Totally different response. Really incredible, though. After this, Jesus heals a deaf and mute man and then feeds 4,000 people who are kind of more the Gentile uh, persuasion there. This shows us again that he's bred not just for the Jews, but for all people. And then after this, he visits a bunch of different places, heals a blind man, predicts his death and resurrection, and then is transfigured before his inner circle of Peter, James, and John. You feel the pace of this? I'm even doing this a little more quickly to kind of feel the pace that, man, Jesus is doing a lot of stuff, and the disciples are following, and this is a lot of things. So Jesus, in this, is telling the disciples again that he's going to die, and that true leaders in his kingdom wouldn't lord it over others with titles and positions, but would be servants to others. So as you take a look at what Jesus did during those six months, it's clear that he's staying in the margins. He's staying in the margins. He isn't trying to draw a whole lot of attention to himself. And why is that? Remember, end of John 6, people are like, we want to make you king. Not a great idea when you have an insecure king reigning, right? Remember all the Herods and all all that stuff going on? Very insecure king's reign. The Pharisees were growing in their hatred for him. And with only six months left 
until the cross. Jesus was using that time intentionally to train the disciples. So all of that's going on as we flip the page now and get into John 7. So keep that in mind as we look at this. So take a look now at John 7, verses 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see your works, that the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. So we see Jesus' half-brothers here, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, urging him to attend the feast and to do some miracles to put himself on display. Do you think they understand how Jesus operates? I know. Just like Satan had tempted earlier, they're basically egging him on. Come on, Jesus. If you really are the Messiah, show it. Do some miracles on demand. Come out of hiding. Show yourself to the world. If you really are the Son of God, remember those words from the temptation passages? Remember, they're going to come when he's on the cross later too. Come on, if you really are the Son of God, if you really are the Messiah, why all the hiding? Why all the secrecy? Show yourself. Do a cool parlor trick. Do a miracle. Come on, do it right now. Jesus had already responded that he can't do anything on his own. He only does what he sees the Father doing. He only says what he hears the Father saying. He couldn't just do miracles at will to convince the masses that he is the Messiah. He wanted their hearts, remember? He didn't just want to entertain them. Not only that, but the people have been clamoring to make him king. They didn't understand that his kingship starts in the heart and works its way outward. They wanted him to throw off the Romans, to set them free, to provide for them at the expense of a relationship with them. They wanted all the stuff, all the goodies he could bring, just not him. Why do we want Jesus? What's really under that? And Jesus wasn't really about that, right? Here we see the members of his own family not believing in him. Why would it be so hard for them to believe in Jesus? What do you think it would take to convince them? A great question we can ask people who are on the fence about Jesus is what would it actually take to convince you that Jesus is God? What would it actually take to convince you? Or another way to say it, do you really want him to be God? I mean, because he is, right? But what would it take to convince you? So we see Jesus here knowing their hearts, knowing they really don't believe in him, and knowing the outcome if he did things their way. According to this one commentator, Frank Hamrick, from Positive Action, he says, Jesus knew what would happen to him if he went to Jerusalem their way. He knew that the people there were divided about him, that some hated him, that some believed in him, and that others wanted to use him for their own purposes. His plan, however, was not to be 
king their way, but to die. His plan was to die, to set up another kind of kingdom, one from the inside out. So as we look at the brothers clamoring for him to show up and be seen, watch how Jesus responds to them now. Here's some of the responses starting kicking in. Their response is, come on, just do something. Show yourself. Look at his response to them, verses 6 through 9. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time's always here. <laughs> I love that. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus tells his brothers that his time is not yet. We see this all over the Gospels. His time is not yet. His time has not yet come. It almost sounds like Jesus is in control of the circumstances and timing of his dying. Doesn't it sound that way to you? (laughs) Spoiler alert. He is, right? Jesus knew how, when, where he would die, and he laid his plans carefully not to avoid his death, but rather to ensure not only that it would occur, but also precisely at the time he and the Father had planned. Everything Jesus did was precise and on purpose. Again, this is what Frank Frank Hamrick, that, that commentator, said. Everything he did was precise, And on purpose, he was fulfilling prophecy. He was perfectly yoked to his father. He was perfectly abiding in him. Everything he did then was exactly according to their plan to save us. What does that do, knowing that he went to such great lengths to plan for our salvation? It's incredible. Well, not only that, but Jesus knew that if he went openly into Jerusalem with the disciples, it would disrupt the whole city, and that was not his purpose. So it's amazing to see Jesus here perfectly orchestrating the time and place of his, de- of his death to fulfill all prophecy. He is truly a sovereign king and is in control, and that is really good news for us, that we have someone who's in control, isn't it? You look at the news today, and you're like, what in the world is happening? Is anyone in control? Yeah, we do have someone who's in control. And history and the events of our lives are not just barreling ahead with no bigger plan behind them. Jesus is in control. So after saying this, Jesus stays where he is. His brothers, whatever, Jesus, right? They go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, So let's pause here real quick and unpack what this was. Feast of Tabernacles, anyone know what? Feast of what? Well, let me just explain this real quick. Again, the positive action curriculum I'm I'm looking at lays it out super easily. It says this, the Feast of Tabernacles was a major festival for the Jews. It began toward the end of September, kind of the time we're in now, lasted seven days during the festival The Jews lived in booths constructed of palm branches. Because of this, it's called the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot in Hebrew. Jeff, you'll have to ask if I'm saying that word right. The feast was a memorial to God. 
for giving them the land and for giving them food that came from the land. And it was also a feast of gratitude to God. So after Jesus sent the disciples to the feast ahead of him, Jesus prepared to attend the event himself, but he goes in secret according to his father's timing and will. So he goes there secretly rather than publicly. So take a look at verses 10 through 13 at what happens as he's going and as he gets there. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So Jesus goes to that feast secretly, comma, according to his father's leading. That's kind of a great way to live, isn't it? According to the father's leading, right? So the Jews are looking for him as he knew they would be, and just like he knew They're muttering about him. Some thought, yeah, you know, he's a good man. Others are like, man, this guy is just deceiving the people. But everyone was afraid of the religious leaders, so they didn't talk openly about Christ. So here we see some of these responses to Jesus. Some think he's just a good man. Remember C.S. Lewis's quote about this, the liar, lunatic, Lord quote? Here is the quote from Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Ever meet someone like that? I'm a poached egg. Crazy, right? Or else you'd be the devil of hell. You you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Comma, check this out. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the the view that he was and is God. Wow. Love C.S. Lewis. That's from mere Christianity. So Jesus is not just a good man. He actually claimed and proved to be God the Son in human flesh. Remember months and months and months and months and months ago, I think when I was first starting to preach here, I shared this little um, acronym called PANIC. Right? When you're in the situation sharing faith with people, it can be like, ah, how do I share this? Well, PANIC. Don't Panic. Jesus fulfilled prophecies only God could fulfill, have had attributes only God could have, was called names 
only God could be called, did impossibilities only God could do, and made claims about himself only God could make, right? Prophecies, attributes, names, impossibilities, and claims. So others thought he was just a liar or a deceiver. But take a look at his life, his character, his entire life, how he treated people, bears out that he is not a liar. No one has ever spoke or acted like Jesus did. So into the mess of all these responses to Jesus, Jesus steps up and, man, he starts to teach. And take a look at what he says in verses 14 and following. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So in the middle of the feast, Jesus goes into the temple and he, he just starts teaching. And the people there are marveling at him. Most probably knew he grew up in Nazareth in a very humble way. So they start wondering, where did this guy get this stuff from? Where did he get his teaching from? And I love what John tells us. It's an appropriate response to our awesome Jesus. They marvel at him. Where did they get this stuff? How is he speaking like this if he never studied like we did? This is my prayer as we're talking to people and, and we start interacting with their different responses to Jesus. Jesus, fill us with your spirit so the things we say just confound people so that you give us in real time the real heart issue with the person so that it just makes the person go, shuts their mouth, right? And they see it's him in us. Fill us with your spirit so much so our words are your words so that people, when they hear us, hear you speaking through us. Fill us with your spirit so people wonder where we get this authority and boldness from so they realize we, just ordinary people, have been with Jesus. That's Acts 4.13. So it's obvious that the spirit is filling and speaking through Jesus in this moment. Take a look at verses 16 through 18. So Jesus answered them, my teaching's not mine, but his who sent me. I love this verse. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus tells them his teaching's not his own, but the one who sent him. And who is that? God the Father, right? My teaching belongs to him. He's the one who sent me. He's the one speaking through me. He then makes a promise to them. If your will is to do God's will, you will know where my teaching and my authority comes from. So if your will is to do God's will, you will know where Jesus' authority and his teaching comes from. But if you're proud, seeking all the glory for yourself, you're going to be blinded to it. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So how is your heart this morning? This table humbles us. 
because it basically shows us we cannot save ourselves, right? We cannot sanctify ourselves. We cannot glorify ourselves. We need Jesus from start, in the middle, in the end, the whole thing. We need him. This table reminds us and humbles us constantly. Is our will to do God's will? Or do we have our own thing going on? Speaking on our own authority, seeking our own glory. Well, watch what Jesus says next, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So now, now Jesus is getting right down to the heart motivation here. He lays it out for them. Since they love the law of Moses so much, he tells them, you're not keeping the law. And you are, in fact, trying to kill the one the law pointed to as your only hope for salvation. That's not good, is it? (laughs) As you can imagine, the people don't like that very much. Look at their response, verse 20. The crowd answered, thank you for your kind words, Jesus. Thank you for pointing out the error of our ways. Thank you for showing how our hearts have gone astray. No, look, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Talk about a sharp response to Jesus. You have a demon. In other words, you're crazy thinking people are out to get you and kill you. What are you talking about? Now, is Jesus deterred by this? Not in the least. Take a look at his response, verses 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, I did one work, And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Look at this next verse. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, remember all the stuff's going on in John. This harkens back to John 5, right? Jesus tells them he did one work, healing the man by the pool on the Sabbath, and they are all marveling at it. But now he starts to pull out and point out their hypocrisy. He says, Moses gave you circumcision, so you guys do that on the Sabbath, As God the Son in human flesh, I came to forgive your sins and give you life. I gave that for the man on the Sabbath. I did that for the man on the Sabbath, raised him up, made him totally well, and you're going to condemn me for that? Jesus is right to tell them to not judge by appearances, but by right judgment. So that seems to shut their mouths for a little while. But seeing all this evokes some strong responses from the crowds. Take a look, 25 through 27. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one knows where he comes from. So this crowd, as we move to wrap up today, this crowd is starting to put all the pieces together. If Jesus really was God's Messiah, why aren't the leaders accepting him? 
But if he really was the Messiah, was God's Messiah come from Nazareth of all places? That seems so humble and dirty and backwoods. Why would he come from there? Wouldn't he come from pomp and circumstance? We think Messiah should look and act and talk a certain way, not that way. So these crowds are torn apart about the leader's response to Jesus and about where Jesus came from and their expectations for him. So to clarify this, Jesus answers them with boldness and clarity. Take a look, 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So since they're trying to figure out if Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus comes out and answers it for them. I didn't come on my own accord. God, the Father, sent me. He is true. I know him, and he is the one who sent me as the Messiah. And then he drops the mic, right? Game over. Of course, they don't like that. Look at the mixed responses, our last verses for today, verses 30 and 31. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So even though there's hundreds of responses to Christ, many, many that we looked at today, his hour had not yet come, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man had done? So the leaders are emboldened and now more than ever want to arrest Jesus and kill him. But it's not his time yet. Jesus is fully in control of the time of his death and now wasn't the time. But there's another group of people, check it out, who follow the evidence where it leads see his signs and believe in Jesus. And their posture is when the Messiah comes, is he really going to do more signs than Jesus? Isn't that an awesome response? They're putting the pieces together and they're like, man, all the signs are pointing to this guy. Let's put our faith in this guy. And isn't that a great response? So we see two final responses to Jesus emerge here. Either we kill him because he's a threat or we believe in him because he's the real deal. So what is your response to Jesus today? We saw a lot of responses here. His brothers didn't believe in him up to this point. The crowds had, you know, mixed responses to him. Some are just straight up confused about him. Others just want to kill him, while others follow the evidence where it led and realize no one can do what he was doing and not be God's Messiah. So this leads us to the million-dollar question yet again. What is your response to Jesus today? What is it? I'm going to end right there. Let's pray. So Father, as we head into communion now, I just pray that you would allow us to examine our hearts and to ask this question, what is our response to you? Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't yet trusted you, Lord, I pray that you would just show them what they're really truly trusting in today to get them right with you. If it's their own works, their own sense of goodness, show them that that's not enough 
to save them. And that's not even what you're asking for. Lord, show them that the only thing that saves us is Jesus and his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. So Lord, if there's anyone here today trusting in themselves or their good works to save them, let them cast that off and trust in Jesus right now because there's nothing else that can save us but you. And Lord, for all of us here who have trusted you, thank you that you opened our eyes to receive what you did for us. And show us now the response that you're looking for from us too, which is also faith. Show us, Lord, where you're working in our lives and what thing you're calling us to put our trust in, what attribute about you, what thing you're leading us to, what, how you're leading us, how you're guiding us, what you're up to right now in our lives that you're calling us to trust you in. Confirm that through your word, by your spirit, through your people, through circumstances, through people who know and love you and know and love us and lead us to have the correct response to you, which is faith. So Lord, as we go into communion, drive these points home and help us keep asking what is our response to you. We ask this in your name, amen.